line, and the past is behind me, and the present is where I'm standing right now, and the future's ahead of me. That's how people perceive time. They say, okay, well, you know, when I look back to my past, when I look forward to my future, so they understand that the common understanding of time is it's a line. You even speak about timelines. But if you want to truly change and metamorphosize into something radically different, let's begin with re-understanding our notion of time. The notion of time, the way we perceive it, is not a linear progression, but a spiral, which means as follows. There's a progression, but the progression is circular in as much as it keeps on getting to the same points, the same energy stations, and as it goes forward, historically, you always keep on meeting these old friends at every station along this rotation. Now, their rotation takes a year to go through. And their rotation keeps on arriving at the same stations. The rotation begins. Depends which way you look at it. It could begin with Rosh Hashanah. It could begin with Pesach. And then what happens is, let's say we begin with Pesach. The first station is there's an intense period of time where the energy locked into the creation builds up in increasing intensity until it explodes in the moment of what's called the giving of the Torah and Harasina. And after that moment, there's a consolidation period which pushes on, pushes on, pushes on. Tragically, tragically there's some dark periods which follow in Tammuz and Av, and then it gets to Elul, and already a sense of freshness, of rebirth, starts to descend. People we feel become slightly more spiritually attuned. And this spiritual attunement climaxes with the recreational day of Rosh Hashanah, where the essence of the person's being is restored in the gift of a whole new lease on life. But being that that life, lease on life is precarious, time for re-evaluation of my life occurs until it climaxes in that incredibly powerful day called Yom Kippur, when any kind of external accessories which are obstructing the connection to self are gracefully removed, and then we enter into this bliss period, which is Sukkot, climaxing with Simchat Torah, and then we have time to take a deep breath and reap the riches of those spiritual endowments, and that's Keshvan, and then we move towards Hanukkah, and here we arrive at Hanukkah. And Hanukkah, for us, in these times, perhaps has never been more deeply significant. Think about the Hanukkah miracle. A handful, literally a handful of Jews are pitted against the most powerful empire of the time. And the power of the empire was not only with the sword, primarily the power of the empire was with the tongue. Seducing the Jewish people to adopt a different style of living. A style of living which says healthy body, healthy mind. A style of living which praised the philosophical, deep thinking power of human intellect. Philosophy which praised aesthetics, glorified the arts. Philosophy, we said, let's live a healthy, 
intelligent, productive, artistically engaged man. And there was a group of, through the eyes of the Hellenists, backward, religious fanatics who said, no, no. We say a resounding no to that system of belief. We rebel against this way of life. Now, if I would be a, a kind of spectator watching the scene take place, I'm not quite sure which, which side I'd align myself to. I may well think, well, these guys are like caught up in an archaic paradigm. You couldn't move with the times. Do they not realize that this whole mumbo-jumbo, traditionalist, outdated spiritual stuff needs to give way to modern progression? And not only do they sit there passively, opposing philosophically the ideals of the age, they took to arms. And they began a guerrilla warfare to drive the modern secularists, the Hellenists, out of the sanctuary of the temple until they vanquished the enemy on the 25th day of Kislev. I mean, how well do you relate to the Hanukkah story? Imagine, and again, it's not like in our, in our mind's eye, perhaps, we imagine the Makabim, Makashmanoim, as these mighty, fierce warriors that they were bench-pressing huge amounts of weights like the Spartans. The Spartans, the way this... I can imagine some of the people in the, in the army facing the Makashmanoim were probably like, I reckon they were Spartans. And they must have been. When you're like a little Spartan kid, you're born, what happens to you? They leave you outside for the night great way of like bringing a kid into the world to make sure that you survive. If you survive, it shows you've got like a certain amount of character. So imagine like being trained from like day one to be a warrior. And then when you're a little kid, okay, I would imagine six or seven, they buy you a baby calf. A little, a little, a little ox. So, so as a little kid, that's like a fun toy to play with when you're a Spartan. Like, we play with Playmobil, like Spartans play with oxen. Like live scorpions. And so they, they say to you, listen, just small task. Just lift this little, this little animal on your back and just like walk around for a couple of hours a day. So a little kid does that. And what happens is this animal grows. So every day the kid's like, you know, hoisting more and more weight until eventually you get like, you know, a 10-year-old who's got a massive bull on his shoulders. <laughs> amazing. So these guys are like war-trained warriors. They're like war-trained warriors, like, you know, for fun. They stand there while, while their buddy like, kicks them in the groin. Serious. I've seen videos. <laughs> I have, I have seen, like, I've seen videos like that. Where, like, guys get slammed. Bam. Eesh. Oh. It's like, these are like hard guys. Okay, so that's like, so we just contrast. Let's contrast. Like, we contrast Stelio. Stelios is like growing up, he's like got his bull, he like spends his days like headbutting to like strengthen his forehead, he like smashes against glass to strengthen his fists, and like it's like, there's like 9,000 of them, and they're like, they're, they're these military trained geniuses, and like kind of like give these parallel screens, and then you see like his, his, his soon to be opponent, Yankel. <laughs> 
Yankin is like, Yankin at the age of six, you know, like he's, there's a, no one gives him a bull. Give him a Mishnayas. Yankin is thinking. The Rebbe says, Yankin He says, Yes, sir. He says, Yankin, no, what's the chat in the Mishnah? Yankin says, Oh, this is the chat. Oh, how can you say that? And Yankin, you know, he's so taken up in his learning, he barely eats anything. He's like scrawny, hunched over guy. And like, you're like a. And like Yankula falls over. <laughs> Meanwhile, Stelios! Oh, Stelios! So now, now you've got Yankula and you've got Stelios. Now Yankula, like, like, is like, you know, there's like a thousand Stelios him. So there's like, there's also like a like hundred Yankulas. And now they, they go to war. So now, but now Yankula is already a bocha. He's got like a feeble beard because he decided not to shave. Stelios is like this warrior. Warrior, like, you know, even with his armor, like his chest burst forth. He's like, more ripped than I want to be ripped. Which is a lot. And, and so Stelios goes and like, they like line up in battle. You can imagine like the Jewish battlefront. Chaimka says, Yanka, no, Yanka, what are you doing? These guys look scary. Ah, not so scary. Like, you know. And like, they're busy like thinking and like, so, 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 so swords, they look sharp. So what do you mean? I mean, we've got uh, wooden clubs. <laughs> yeah, they go to battle. They go to battle. Like, what are the chances? What are the chances? The chances are zero. The chances are literally zero. It would be one for one. The Spartan walking to the room, he'd stamp his foot. The Shiva Bach would collapse out of front. Imagine. And like, you can just imagine like, you know, Yankel attacking Stelio. He goes up to him and goes, Stelio, <laughs> Stelio looks at him and says, it's a fly. <laughs> like, Yankel like, he's really trying his hardest. And like, the guy's like made of metal. So what happens? So it's absolutely ludicrous. Something happens. I don't know what happens. I don't know what happens. But something happens. I imagine it's something like this. You can see like Stella with like 10 friends in a phallus and they're attacking, attacking and then Yankula goes up and he says, yeah, this can't be vice toy stuck it's a swatter and he goes, no! Like with one flick of the thumb and like he gets Stelios in the eye. Stelios falls over, his sword penetrates his, his buddy's throat who then falls over and his shield strangles the one next to him and like when Yankula comes along there's a Ten dead Greeks. He goes, no, nah, <laughs> Must have been something like that. It would have been a fascinating battle to watch. I would have been, loved that battle. That would have been a great battle to watch. But really what we're talking about is, is okay, so, and then that's why, that's why actually the candles are the, are the, are the form of, of reliving that experience. Because when you look at the battle, you could always, you could always say, well, a battle's a battle. But when you see the candles and you see the supernatural component that it couldn't be, it just could not be, it just could not be, it could not be, you can't, you can't get oil to burn that long, it just doesn't work, then you recognize that it couldn't be that this group of miserable Shiva Bochum managed to overcome the might of the Greek Assyrian Empire. It just, it just, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. And you know, you think this is like outdated and, 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 and history, but there, there's, there's in, in the Six-Day War, the Egyptians were literally marching through Sinai and could just keep, kept on going. Kept on going. For some bizarre reason that no one understands, they stopped midway and they turned around and went back. 
So, stories are saying that they saw huge armies marching towards them. Other people who are more rational say they were, it was so, they were so just like making progress that they thought it must be an ambush. So they turned around and went back. So it's like, if you think about it, Hanukkah's story is not so outdated. On a national level, the chances of this measly, tiny little state existing in this extremely hostile environment. I mean, you know, if I would be like, I'd put Israel in Australia. Like, like somewhere like, you know, I don't know, somewhere along Queensland, you could just like fit Israel on there pretty easily. Like you don't want it to be in the middle of Australia because it's all desert. <laughs> Most of Australia is desert. But then again, the land is girt by sea. So, that, um, <laughs> so, so you could like just fit Israel there and like, you know, you'd be amongst Australians and like, you know, Australians, even when they get aggressive towards Israelis, they'll probably say, yeah, we don't like these guys. <laughs> so it's so, so what you do. I don't know. It's just like, some another beer. <laughs> but, but like, you're surrounded by these like, people who are like these militant activists. Like, oh, like, where are you going to put Israel? Like, put Israel in the Middle East and they're surrounded like, even surrounded by like, like nice Westerners. But, like, they talk, you negotiate and then like, they, they, like, surrounded by like, like, fanatic people that they want to like, behead you. It's like an unpleasant environment to be in. It's like, it's bad neighbors. You don't need to be with bad neighbors. It's like, it's horrible. And there's the Israel, this measly little state with a measly little army of people that go, ah, the Tzvah Israel. You're joking, you're joking, you're joking. And when your neighbors go, and you're gone, you've got 50 million, and then there's change. So how does this tiny little minuscule state survive year by year, day by day? I mean, I'm amazed. Just forget about the miraculous survival of Israel in terms of the military threat. Probably internal threat. Have you ever been around Jews? Jews are difficult to get along, along with. And that's when like, they're all in the same community. You've got Jews, like, so you put a bunch of like, Ashkenazi South African together. <laughs> by the gun. Like throwing like, some Americans. Throwing a few bricks. Then you bring in like, Iranians, Moroccans, Tunisians, Turkish. Well, what's the chance of thing happening? You're going to think of, forget about the external things when they implode. They're going to kill each other. So when you actually see that this is a coherent society, that in itself is a miracle. How do you like pick people from the four corners of the earth, slam them together in like this tiny little place, which is overcrowded and everyone's rude, and you expect it to work? And it works. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And that's why, just a rule of thumb, in Israel, since everything's miraculous, remember, before you do anything, pray. For example, you go into the bus. No, no, you can't just go to the bus. You have no idea what's going to happen. You know the brother signs you tell you when the bus comes? They lie. <laughs> they literally lie. What happens is, see, bus coming. You need to be somewhere, you need to be there in 10 minutes, it's an 8 minute bus drive, and the bus is 2 minutes away. So you go, oh, I'm okay. Don't think that. You're falling into the trap of Hellenism. You look at those, there's 2 minutes, you go, Yabonish Olam, please. I know the bus is not coming in 2 minutes. Please, they're coming in 2 minutes. Because I've been in many a bus stop. It goes 2 minutes, and I'm late, and I say, what a relief. One minute, and there's this bus is coming. I look around me. There's nothing. The bus is a phantom. It never came and never was. And that sign said to me, we're all good. We're all good. And then it changes back to 10 minutes. Then it changes back to 10 minutes. <laughs> so you have to realize that Israel is a place where the miraculous is the norm. 
And therefore, since the miraculous is the norm, never expect cause and effect, and always recognize that if you want to get anywhere or do anything, you have to pray. If you want to eat shawarma and come out okay, you have to pray. There were people that ate shawarma last night, I gave them a blessing. I gave two people a blessing. One person is okay. Sorry, I gave one person a blessing, the other two that ate there. One of the people that had the blessing is here. Another one just made it. <laughs> so, okay, so this is it. So now, how is this going to transform my life? Well, again, think about it. Why, why don't we want to change? I'll tell you why we don't want to change. Because change is impossible. Change is impossible. The odds against me changing, that they stacked against me. How am I going to transform my life? I'm set in my habits, I'm set in my mind frame, I'm set in everything I do. I've been habituated from a very young age. And now you're going to click your fingers and change is an impossibility. I am the way I am and just follow the trajectory and that's what I'm going to be like for the rest of my life until Hanukkah comes along. And then Hanukkah comes and says, you can have the ultimate opposition. You can have a force which is so powerful and so strong that you hitting against it is like a little mouse hitting along the legs of an elephant. And the mouse capsizes the elephant. Well, taking out your Talmudic thumb, you can reason. If the Hashmanoim, based on their pure motivation, could overthrow the might of the Greek army, me, with my puny little lack of spiritual resources, given that same kind of heavenly assistance, can overrun the might of the internal opposition that threatens my spiritual survival day by day. And our spiritual survival as a nation and as individuals is threatened day by day. Our grit to be able to reach a level of mastering Talmud is threatened day by day because it's not easy. And when it gets tough, we want to just give up and go home. And it's threatened. Our ability to retain an element of purity in our relationships is threatened by an onslaught of social media and technology which beckons us to fall prey to it 24-7. On every level of our emotional survival, we have threats of anxiety and depression. We have threats of obsessiveness and lack of clarity, confusion and bewilderment. How in the world, in 2019, have I managed to survive as a spiritual warrior carrying forth the beacon of life? Light, the choices, the choices are minuscule and unrealistic. Unless we recognize that that is correct, we are completely incapable of overcoming the opposition that lies Unless we take two arms, like the Hashemunayim did. So what did they think? What did they think? When they started that war, what did they think? I don't know what they thought. There was probably something like, we live in a world where the utilitarian nature of Western society has bound us to try to quantify 
are essential beings. And the way that we define ourselves is in terms of career, income, and social status. We measure ourselves based on a system of physical numbers and quantities. And tragically, the depth and beauty of human existence is being destroyed. And as euthanasia becomes no longer a question, should I pull the plug or not, which is way to pull it, we deprive humanity of its gift of beauty and transcendence by saying if a person has a functional role in society, he has value and worth. The minute that ceases to be, he should be eliminated. And one wonders that as time progresses, perhaps we won't be only putting plugs on people on life support systems, but why not pull the plug on them when they start to get decrepit in the 80s and 90s and stop acting as functional members of society? Since we've ruled that the value of life is only what it contributes towards a society in bolstering the national income. But when we step back and we recognize the beauty of humanity as a transcendent gift to be able to connect beyond space and time to higher goals and purposes, and we recognize that that is going in the face of absolutely everything which surrounds us, we feel like this small band of warriors that are trying to fight against the world. So what do we feel? Or we feel the following thing. We feel we don't have to win the war. We don't have to win the war. No one's asking us to win the war. And I'm pretty sure when the Hashemunayim began their battle, they never dreamed of winning the war. They thought they would die in battle. They thought they'd be obliterated. What they probably thought is after the first five minutes of battle, they'd all be dead. And they said, okay, well, dying for life is better than living for death. And the miracle was when you're willing to die for life, so then you're given the gift of life. And if we can borrow from the energy of this time and from the story of the Hashemunayim, so let's, let's go die for life. Let's go die for life. How do you die for life? Well, you just you give up a little bit. The Gemara says, quoting a pasuk in Pasha's Chukas, which is, Adam ki a man when you will die in a tent. The Gemara interprets this verse to say, that the words of Torah mean this deep heritage of spiritual courage that we possess only works when you're willing to die for it. And the way we die for it is not that we go out and wage some kind of physical war, but we die for it in the comfort of our own space. We die for it when we're willing to give up that comfort. When we're willing to give up that security. When we're willing to think just that little bit deeper. When we're willing to push ourselves just that little bit further. And all of that is, it, it sucks our life force. It's a, it's a self-sacrifice. But it's a self-sacrifice which is dying for life as opposed to 
indulging and sucking in and becoming used to the creature comforts which become us and they build around us a padded coffin so that we can remain existing until time for termination occurs. What a tragedy of the gift. What a belying of the tradition of the Hashemunayim. Here we are. We survived this long. 3,000 years. Here we are. Every single one of us. 3,000 years old. We owe it to every single Jew that gave up his life and died physically to keep it going. We've got to keep it going. And the way we keep it going is we willing to give up self-sacrifice to devote ourselves to maintaining, to working, to striving. Are we going to win the war? Probably not. So we'll die. But we'll die for life. I think that's the message of Hanukkah that's extremely relevant and compelling for each and every one of us, wherever we are, at whatever stage. It's let me try just Get a little bit deeper, give up a little bit more, study a little bit broader, deeper, more, extend myself just to drop beyond, and connect to the reality of this world and not get distracted by the illusions of the world that threatens to deprive us of who we are and where we need to go to. So I think that's something to, to ponder on today um, and to perhaps. You know, reflect on as we as we relight the flame of the Hashem Noy. And as a little candle burns, you can stare into its light. Mm-hmm. I think it's a tiny little 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 drop of a flame. But that tiny little flame can push off a world of darkness. That's what we're trying to do. Each one of us is a tiny little flame. Tiny little flame. The majority of our people are lost and assimilated and it's happening on an hour-by-hour basis. And we those remnants, those flames that have been rescued, all we can do is make sure that we burn brightly and consistently. And that's our mission. And that's our gift. And that's our legacy. Let's do it. Thank you for your time, patience, and have a wonderful coming.